I think if you really want to understand your potential, you've got to go to um, dark places. You've got to square up with the dragon. You've got to um, understand range, both in the sense of freedom as well as the places that are scary. And I still think that that is true, but I'm not sure that it needs to feel unhealthy on the path towards it. And um, we used to think in high-performing sport that true high performance began where well-being ended. I don't think that that's true anymore. I think that it's actually quite dangerous, and I can't believe that me and so many of us believed that. But we didn't have a better way of understanding how to help somebody get to the edge. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, leaders, and people looking for high performance in business and in life. Now, each week, I sit down with one of the world's most successful people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, mindsets, and habits that help them get there. Now, it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. And if you want access to over 300 episodes and insights with game changers and change makers, head to whatgotyouthere.com, where you can also subscribe to my Momentum Monday newsletter. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Hey guys, it's Sean, and today on the podcast, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with one of the people who has had the greatest impact on my personal growth, and that is Dr. Michael Gervais. Now, Dr. Gervais is one of the top high-performance psychologists and leading experts on the relationship between the mind and human performance. Now, he is someone who has worked with the best of the best. I'm talking about titans of business, world champions in sports, and those across the arts and sciences because they care about achieving the extraordinary, and he provides them the psychological tools to do that. And we are going to dive into some of those psychological tools on this episode. Dr. Gervais is also the author of a new book, The First Rule of Mastery, Stop Worrying What People Think of You. So if you're interested in his work, head over to findingmastery.com. You can pick up his book, and you can also get some awesome resources he's giving away. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. Michael Gervais. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I've got something really special to share with you. My new book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is out now. Inside the pages, you'll find 365 daily meditations carefully designed to challenge, inspire, and catalyze personal and professional evolution. To get your copy, head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com or go to Amazon and search Masterpiece in Progress by Sean Delaney, or you can just click the link below. Can't wait for you guys to read it. Are you a leader, executive, or CEO who everyone looks to for all the answers? If so, who are you turning to when faced with your own challenges? This is a silent burden many high performers face. And if you've been looking for a trusted coach to be in your corner, one who offers clear, unbiased insights, fortifies your confidence, ignites clarity, and challenges your perspectives, then I've got something special for you. I'm opening up five exclusive spots for my executive life coaching program that starts January 1st. Now, this is an intensive 90-day one-on-one coaching program blending strategy, accountability, and deep self-introspection to get clarity on what will make for a fulfilling life and how to unlock your abilities to make that life become a reality. Now, these 90 days are going to change the trajectory of your entire year. And just so we're clear, this isn't for the people who are just going through the motions of life. This is for the people who are in pursuit of their best life. And since you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you're one of those people. But remember, I am only accepting five new people this year. So if you're interested and want to reserve your spot today, send me an email right now, sean at whatgotyouthere.com, 
and I spell Sean, S-E-A-N. Can't wait to start working with you. Mike, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I am stoked to be with you today. So thank you for having me back. Absolutely. This is going to be a fun adventure. Every single time we talk, it is. I think one of the things that you're incredible at is bringing up the awareness of the people you're communicating to. And I think everything begins with awareness. And then you help them with psychological tools to get past that. And so this has me wondering about a recent experience you had with the pinnacle of surfing, and that's Kelly Slater. And you recently went out to his ranch. And I want to know what that experience is like for you, someone who's a lifelong surfer, both in the preparation for that experience, and then how are you evolving through that experience? Ah, oh, very cool. So it is like Disneyland when you're eight years old, you know, just thinking about whatever the holiday is or the event is when you're just all excited. So it was great. And it was like that for me. Um, I definitely kicked up a notch on preparation from fitness because um, you're there with, uh, I think it was about 12, 15 other friends. And when you're out in the water for the hour, you get three waves. That's it. Mm. And so you got to make the most of it now. Yeah. And so, um, and all of your friends are, are there watching, which was a fun little mini experiment for me to see how far I've come with FOPO, fear of people's opinions, uh, which I know we'll get into in the conversation. So it was great. Uh, fitness was on point. Excitement was definitely there. It's a wave that has some real juice to it. So when you're held under, you're held under for a little bit longer than you would imagine. And you're surfing on about three feet of concrete. So uh, there's a mini consequence there as well. Yeah. Um, I got tangled up with my board, kind of got a nice little gash on my foot. So, you know, the whole, but listen, it sounds like I'm being dramatic. The whole thing was amazing. And thank you for bringing it up. What is the emotional preparation like for you? You said you even amped up the intensity for the physical element. Mm-hmm. What is the internal dialogue like for Dr. Michael Gervais in preparation for something like that? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's supposed to be that much different than maybe somebody else's. But um, it's more focused on mental imagery. And so, you know, I've, I've trained my whole life to understand the, the potency of thoughts and how thoughts and emotions work together. And so I was just giving myself some almost, I would consider it free training, free physical training by using my imagination to see myself, you know, surfing well on the wave that I want to surf well on. And so it was a bunch of that. From the emotional standpoint, um, I didn't need a much that I didn't need much work there. I was orientating toward being excited as opposed to nervous. And um, yeah, so it was mostly mental imagery. Hmm. This has me thinking about what I think this conversation is going to be centered around, and that's the invisible. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and that's what is essential is invisible to the eyes. And I would love to know some of those things you already mentioned there around emotions, just how those invisible boundaries hold us back and what you're thinking about to overcome those. I think everything that's really interesting is invisible. And mm. the whole world of psychology except for the behavioral aspect is invisible. And so I think most reasonable people would agree that um, thoughts and emotions precede behaviors. So if you want to go upstream to have behaviors that are strong and powerful and flexible or agile, whatever the word or adjective is, and if you want to have consistent behaviors, we call that performance, right? If you want to have some sort of consistency and to be able to do it on command, then we go upstream. We go upstream to investigate the invisible, which are thoughts and emotions, basically, or thoughts and feelings. 
technically emotions are um, visible. So emotions are um, objective. You can observe them. I can see your emotions. You can see my emotions. But the way that, and so they're physiological sensations, meaning mm. your heart rate changes, your breathing rate changes, changes, maybe your skin starts to sweat a little bit, maybe you got a little tremor in your hands, your eyes start to dart around. Those are all behavioral um, aspects to emotions. It's the feelings that are private. So it's the way that you, feelings are the way that you make sense of that emotion in the context of where it's taking place. So um, not to be technical at all here, but I'm much more interested in thoughts and feelings interpretations of emotions and interpretations of an event to see if we can get better at being the person we want to be. And so I think, I'll sum it up again, I think everything that is most interesting to me is invisible. Mm -hmm. And of course, beautiful paintings, beautiful artistry, um, a, a com compelling business strategy, possibly if it's written down, well executed, you know, grace under pressure in in athletics, those are all really interesting. But what's more interesting is what goes into that being true. What have you found to happen more of the time? Somebody is holding themselves back due, the, due to these invisible boundaries or people exceed expectations because of the, the excitement of overcoming an invisible boundary? Oh, that's a really interesting framing. Do I think that people hold back or what was the alternative let's to just to make it a little bit clear it's almost like holding yourself back through to fear or the excitement of what's possible oh i th okay that's a again that's a really cool framing i think people definitely underestimate what they're capable of and so there's more fears a much stronger driver and it's so primal we've got a billion years of coding to get to, into this three pounds of tissue that we have. So, so my experience is that fear is far more powerful as a reducer of potential as opposed to excitement doing that. Hmm. So walk me through a personal experience of yours. I know you did that incredible stand-up paddle to Catalina Island a few years ago. And I would love to know what that internal exploration was like for you. So yeah. it sounds like you probably elected to do that based on the second one, right? Almost that, that pull, that gravitational pull towards something as opposed to fear for something. Okay. So let's pull it apart. Um, cool question again, is that there was, there's a channel between Catalina Island and my hometown of Redondo Beach. And I, I grew up in the town of Redondo Beach and surfing. And I'd always look across the channel, which is about 30 some miles at the island. You can see the island from, from land. And just knowing that there was um, first people that lived on that island that would travel back and forth in a canoe that they would build across, you know, Shark Alley, across, you know, the, the pretty radical Pacific currents. Not, not terrible uh, in this channel, but there's some real ones. Just thinking that like thousands of years ago, they were traveling that thing basically by themselves. They'd risk much, come to the mainland, grab some some fresh stock or whatever they needed, and then would bring it back to their family. And I was always inspired by that when I'd be surfing and just kind of looking at, you know, westward to the island. And so I thought, I, you know, I wonder if I could do it. 
and I chose stand-up paddling, which, you know, it's a little bit, you know, there's there's a lot to it. <laughs> Let's just say that. About 20 folks before me had done it, so it wasn't like I was doing a first here. And um, and I got to mile, tw- I, pr- I trained, I properly trained, and I got to, a, I think it was about mile 27, it's hard to exactly know, and um, the, the ocean broke open. I thought I was right at the end. I had been doing this for about six and a half hours at about, I don't know, 90 to 95% um, max effort. And the ocean broke open. I got stuck basically on a treadmill going nowhere at 47 for 47 minutes at the end of the quote unquote marathon, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I completely bonked. I hallucinated. I went into a place that was um, pretty scary. And and there was a trail boat, you know, to make sure that they could navigate sharks and stuff. And I did the unthinkable about 20 minutes into the standing still is I'm paddling, I'm paddling. And now I'm at like 100% effort trying to break out of this um, this thing. I have, I have nothing left. And I, the unthinkable was I dropped to my knees. And so now I'm on a... <laughs> an escalator pulling me away from my destination. And it's it's about four and a half miles an hour, which is fast. And I was only paddling at four and a half miles an hour yeah. just to stand still. <laughs> and so now I'm on a treadmill moving away from my destination. And I hear from the distance, um, it was amazing coaching, amazing coaching. Um, the boat and I had an agreement that I wanted a solo, private, you know, an alone experience to to get to know myself a little bit better. And I hear, all I hear from the distance is stand up. And that was it. I was like, right, stand up, what am I doing? And I had, I couldn't see which board I was on. There's only one board, but but I was hallucinating at that moment. And there was all these weird spots in my, in my vision. And I hear it again from the distance, stand up. And I was like, right, I, I can do, I can at least stand up here. And so I mm. stood up. And then I hear this radical clapping. Like it was, he was a wild person clapping. And I'm like, that's my guy. And he says, one paddle. I was like, right, just one. Okay, okay. And so he just chunked this thing down. It was direct. It was caring. It was forceful. It was like, almost like I had no choice. There was so much energy of where he was coming from. But there was no mincing of words. There was no questioning. There was no thoughts about how things are going, you know, which can be a great tactic in coaching. But it was direct. He told me exactly what to do. Um, there was caring and energy in it. And I stood up. And then there was this instant reward, both from him and from myself when I started paddling. I, I needed another 30 minutes of that. Um, he stopped being quiet, but it was just one paddle at a time. And I, everyone knows kind of that phrase. But when you're forced up against it and you only have, you barely know if you can get one more thing done. Um, there is a, there's a, a, a deeper level that I think um, I wasn't quite sure I had. And so, so that's, you know, that's a, for me, what ended up taking place, I think this is the origin of your story or the origin of your question is like what happened is that I had a, just a ton of calcium that knocked off me. And it was as if I would, everything, everything. Much of what I was carrying around with me from me being in uh, a child to an adult. And I was, listen, I was 40 years old. 
And there was still stuff in there for me that it felt like it just broke loose from my relationship with my parents. And um, when I finally broke out of the, the, the thing, it was like I was just flooded with emotions. It was an amazing moment for me. And I felt different. And so I got to the, finally, you know, a couple hours later, got in the shower. And afterwards I called my mentor and he's like, you know, I knew you're hard headed, but Jesus, like, think about the level you had to go to, to get that level of freedom. So I don't hope anyone has to do that. And I'm not signing up for anything like that anytime soon. But um, sometimes that stuff is deep. And I've spent my life trying to look in to better understand. And I feel like I've come a long way. But sometimes we just, we need to really check ourselves and go into really uncomfortable, honest experiences um, to know just that little bit more of who we want to be. Is going to that level, that depth, is that essential for this process? And I'm asking that, and I also want to add on something I heard you say, and that was not in this conversation, it was another one. And it was around how your early days, where you were just, you had the pedal to the metal, and you were essentially attacking your craft, the pursuit of that craft at a level that you said was unhealthy, mm. unsustainable. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, is this a necessary process to go up to those limits that are unsustainable, unhealthy, to get to this other side where you remove all that internal calcium? Yeah, it was for me. I think that we're all, you know, we're more similar than dissimilar. Let's be clear about that. But that 0 0.0, that 0.1% of difference makes all the difference in tactics and experiences and growth arcs and pain experiences. So I, for me, I, I think probably the answer is yes. And that's also because I didn't know a better way and I still don't know a better way. I, I Honestly, Sean, I'm just trying to figure it out, you know, like to my best. And I don't know if it needs to be unhealthy. I would have probably said 10 years ago. Yeah, I think so. I think if you really want to understand your potential, you've got to go to um, dark places. You got to square up with the dragon. You've got to um, understand range, both in the sense of freedom as well as the places that are scary. And I still think that that is true, but I'm not sure that it needs to feel unhealthy on the path towards it. And um, we used to think in high performing sport that true high performance began where well being ended. I don't think that that's true anymore. I think that it's actually quite dangerous and I can't believe that me and so many of us believed that. But we didn't have a better way of understanding how to help somebody get to the edge. And now we do. You know, we used mm -hmm. to say to people, suck it up, you know, you don't need water. I mean, that's, you yeah, know, like, it's crazy. so we've come a long way in <laughs> 15 to 20 years. So, um, yeah, I do think to, to be super succinct, that there is a path less traveled, that there's a reason it's less traveled, and it's in that inside of that path or on that path that reveals um, to oneself what you're made of. Are you a leader, executive, or CEO who everyone looks to for all the answers? If so, who are you turning to when faced with your own challenges? This is a silent burden many high performers face. And if you've been looking for a trusted coach to be in your corner, one who offers clear, unbiased insights, fortifies your confidence, ignites clarity, and challenges your perspectives, 
then I've got something special for you. I'm opening up five exclusive spots for my executive life coaching program that starts January 1st. Now, this is an intensive 90-day one-on-one coaching program blending strategy, accountability, and deep self-introspection to get clarity on what will make for a fulfilling life and how to unlock your abilities to make that life become a reality. Now, these 90 days are going to change the trajectory of your entire year. And just so we're clear, this isn't for the people who are just going through the motions of life. This is for the people who are in pursuit of their best life. And since you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you're one of those people. But remember, I am only accepting five new people this year. So if you're interested and want to reserve your spot today, send me an email right now, sean at whatgotyouthere.com, and I spell Sean, S-E-A-N. Can't wait to start working with you. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I've got something really special to share with you. My new book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is out now. Inside the pages, you'll find 365 daily meditations carefully designed to challenge, inspire, and catalyze personal and professional evolution. To get your copy, head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com or go to Amazon and search Masterpiece in Progress by Sean Delaney, or you can just click the link below. Can't wait for you guys to read it. And so, yeah, um, I would say yes, but doesn't need to be unhealthy. Yeah, I probably could have framed that better. I'm thinking of, of almost ancient traditions where you go out on your own and you, you sacrifice a lot of just the comforts, but to get oh. to that other side, that's sort of where I was going with that. So I, sh- I should have worded that one better. But this no, has I me like, think. I like, no, I like where you're going with that too. Like, yeah. I, I would say the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you have so much experience in this. You've worked with other people who are on that paddle and they, they sit down or they kneel down. What have you found to be the reason that people get back up? And I'm using that as a metaphor for even making small changes in their lives when they press up against that invisible boundary they've placed on themselves. Well, I definitely think there is um, hope. There is some inkling that there's a little bit of room. And mm-hmm. if I can just stay in that, in that light just a little bit longer, you know, Cat Stevens has a great line. Oh, that's not Cat Stevens. Why am I blinking on the author here? It'll come to me. Maybe we can put in the show notes. Is that uh, inside a crack? Oh my gosh! Now I'm blanking on the. Now I'm kind of jammed up in my head. Hold on, let me think this. Through. I'll give you a minute here. I'll, I'll bring up. This is making me think. And this this quote has been floating in the back of my head when you came up against that invisible boundary. And this is from the German philosopher Goethe. And it's it is beautiful to make progress even when you have reached infinity. And the way I think about that is you reached your infinity. You got to that limit and then all of a sudden you just went one inch further and all of a sudden yeah. infinity expanded. It's one of my favorite ones. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I, I am a firm believer that we don't know our limits. And mm-hmm. I use the word purposely belief because um, it's our belief system that propels us forward and holds us back. And so examining our first principles or our core beliefs are essential to know what is possible. Hmm. And I and you and your community, we all have limiting beliefs and limiting thoughts and they are fully invisible. And that's why writing is so powerful. That's why conversations with people of wisdom where you're forced to choose words about you and about your framing of things and 
their commitment to you is to listen and try to understand. I'll give you a good example just the other day. And then um, the third is meditation and mindfulness where you create a bit of space so that you can feel and see and, and observe how your thoughts and emotions and feelings work. And so, yeah, those invisible beliefs or those invisible limits are typically belief statements. And those beliefs state, invisible limits are usually born on beliefs and beliefs are rest on a series of habits of thought. And those habits of thought get all the way squared down to particular habits, particular thoughts that just get hydrated or um, primed to be explored more often. So it's quite simple. An event takes place in our lives. We have a thought about it. And if we keep thinking and staying on that thought track, it turns into a habit. Habits turn into beliefs. And many of our automatic experiences are are born around trying to keep us safe and alive as opposed to um, spring from this place like I'm going to pursue my potential and I want to have an amazing life. So mm -hmm. the brain is so powerful. It's that three pounds of tissue we mentioned earlier that if you don't have that thing lined up and have a relationship with it, it's going to win. And the purpose of the brain is survival, period. And survival means playing it safe most of the time and holding back not going to the edge, stay in the middle of the pack. You know, that's where safety is. That's where belonging is in the middle for most people. So if you don't work with your brain well, it will do its job properly. And that is mm -hmm. simply to belong and that is to be safe. Mm -hmm. So then walk me through your decision to write your first written book, The First Rule of Mastery, because I know how intentional you are how driven you are, how focused you are. And so I know when you do something, you want it to make an impact. And since we've thrown out enough quotes already, I'll throw another Kafka one out. And it's a book must be the ax for the frozen sea within us. So I want to know what Dr. Michael Gervais wants to do when he writes this book, The First Rule of Mastery. What are you trying to open up in others who read it? And I love how you are asking questions right now. Um, what I was trying to do is quite simple is first and foremost, understand this thing that held me back. Mm -hmm. And it's still, it's not like I'm completely free from it today, but, but I'm exponentially better than when I was younger. And so this FOPO, fear of people's opinions, I believe is one of the greatest constrictors of our potential. It is the thing that holds us back because our brain is doing what it's supposed to do for millions of years of coding, but trying to operate it under modern conditions. And the modern conditions now is that we no longer have wildebeest, we no longer have saber-toothed tigers. You know, that's not the thing that is most dangerous to most of us. For most of us, the most dangerous thing are the eyeballs looking at us and what we interpret those eyeballs to be thinking. And the most dangerous thing are the opinions of other people. Because our brains are primed to be able to survive from the wildebeest and the saber tooth, of course, but also primed to fit in. So we are highly sensitized to the just the slightest hint of rejection. Because 100,000 years ago, if we did, weren't accepted and we were going to be rejected, it was a near death sentence. Meaning that it was too hard to 
fight and forge and hunt and gather and protect your family if the six of you were kicked out of the the tribe of you know 600 and so so we are highly skilled at picking up acceptance and rejection and if left unchecked it wins and I was, I was a 15 year old kid. I saved up to have my first car and I thought it was cool. It cost me about $2,500 and I saved for a couple summers. And, um, and I remember I was driving and there was a car coming up on my left-hand side that was going to pass me. It was a little bit faster. And I grabbed my steering wheel and I propped up and I wanted to look cool for this car passing me. This was like my first week of driving. And I grab my steering wheel and I had this cool kid lean and I look over and all I wanted to do was to look cool to this person. I didn't even know this person. Yeah. And they drive by me and they didn't even look. And I went through all of this activity and I remember thinking like, what am I doing? Like what? And it, it was a bit of a lightning bulb moment for me. Like that is quote unquote crazy is that I was adjusting all of my thinking and behaviors for this person that I thought I wanted attention from and I wanted acceptance from, they didn't even look my way. They had no interest in me at all. So I, I was embarrassed by that because I did that, I think, a lot. And probably like most 15-year-old kids do, but I didn't talk about it. And so I didn't share it. And But I knew it was this thing that I was doing. Come to find out, I wrote an article and I was like, 36 months ago on Harvard Business Review about just that, this slippery little latent decision influencer that all of it, that I thought that I felt that I think a lot of people feel, which is this fear of people's opinions and how it, it contorts and conforms our, our thinking and behaviors. And it keeps us safe. It keeps us small though. And I wrote it for Harvard Business Review and they called back 24 months later, they said, listen, you were the number one downloaded article for two years in a row. Um, let's do a book. And I said, oh my God, I'm not alone. Hmm. <laughs> so, so that's what happened. I just wanted to share my experience with it and just how radically powerful this slippery little invisible fear of what other people might think of us. It's, it's historic roots in biology and how it's showing up in modern times. And it shows up in really clever ways now, Sean. Like, you know, when you check your phone to appear like you're busy or in demand, that's FOPO. It, FOPO is like laughing at a joke that you didn't find funny. That's FOPO. Pretending like that you know a song or a movie or because everyone's talking about it, like, and you don't want to be the odd one out. You know, it's like, I don't know, avoiding a... a a reunion because you're not sure if you've achieved enough. It's hiding your age in industries that prize youth. Like FOPO is, it's around us in really slippery ways. And again, it's designed for acceptance and avoiding rejection. And anytime you feel like you're conforming or contorting or bending to the acceptance of others, you're in the slipstream of FOPO. And I believe that it is one of the great constrictors of one's potential. Where are you going now to root yourself against this? Mm. So we take a look at the on-ramps and off-ramps of FOPO. And one of the fastest tracking on-ramps to a pervasive worry about other people, and again, I should say this is non-clinical. This does not rise to the order of a 
clinical psychological disorder. It's just below the surface. Um, it's adaptive in some ways, maladaptive in others. But the the great on-ramp to it is that our culture is obsessed with performance. And we are, I mean, just look around, like how well you perform and how well you stack up against other people is is been around since you're a kid and the way that your parents or local, you know, influencers in your, in your neighborhood talk to you about school and talk to you about work later on and talk to you about anything that you were doing that was important is they, they don't come out and directly say, you know, well, how do you, how'd you do next to Joey or how'd you do next to Xander? They don't do that. They do something very different. It's more subtle. And we swallow this idea that we matter because of how well we perform. And that it's a breeding ground for what's called a performance-based identity. And a performance-based identity is a bit of a, a way to prop to the world or to have a, a physical emblem about who you are. But of course, we know that who you are can never be um, you know, defining who we are by how we do something is problematic in a lot of ways. And so, um, so the, that's the on-ramp. The off-ramp is a performance, I'm sorry, <laughs> the off-ramp is a purpose-based identity. And so from performance-based to purpose-based is um, a road that few travel. And I think there's um, enough people that are paying attention to having a purpose-based life that it's it's got some real traction right now. So that would be one of the ways to do it. And it's not complicated, Sean, to, to think about how to be purpose-based, but it does take time. It takes time to get your arms around, like, what is my purpose as a human here? What am I doing? And to detangle, de detangle what you do from your self-worth, to detangle this looming, you know, um, fear of failure that you're going to be rejected by others, to detangle a sense of perfectionism that are all um, components to a performance-based identity is to detangle yourself from there and to think deeply about what is my purpose today? If you just want to start in a thin sliced way, what is my mm -hmm. purpose for this week? And eventually when you start practicing this idea of my purpose, then it ladders up to your life purpose. But it does take time. It is available. And it's better served, I think, when you do it with people that really trust you and I'm sorry, that you deeply trust and that um, you have a sense that they want the best for you, which might mm. not be your family members, unfortunately. There's some interesting research that sometimes family members and our closest friends keep us in the lane that they feel comfortable that we're in. As you were navigating the early days of getting closer and honing in on that purpose, you said it's a long journey, it's going to be difficult, it takes introspection. What allowed you to stay on that path where so many jump off it? To be purpose-based? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, for me, like the performance-based stuff, it's kind of like an alcoholic that says, look, I just, I, you know, or, or, or an alcohol abuser. It's like, I just, I just kind of ruined, the, you know, like I, I just, hold on, this is too explosive in my head. I'm thinking of somebody that is um, suffering right now from alcoholism. So I'll, 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 use, I'll say it this way. It is a bit like an alcoholic or somebody that's abusing drugs is that they just didn't know how or when to stop. 
And that's a bit how I felt around a performance-based identity, is that a performance-based identity will get you good. It will definitely help you get better at something. But it can, it's, you know, it's a fire that burns, and I just kind of burned my way through it. So mm-hmm. I just lost my way in, I lost my identity in what I was doing and who I wanted others to think I was. Mm-hmm. And when I finally kind of hit my head on the concrete a little too hard, not literally, I was like, what am I doing with my life? And so, and that was probably about 15 years ago, I think, maybe, huh. maybe less, maybe 12. So this will be really fun then. So you have the new, the new book coming out, The First Rule of Mastery. Obviously, you want this to do extremely well. Who wouldn't, right? Like you want this to be a New York Times bestseller. You want this just to, to be incredible and long lasting. Of course. So then yeah, how do yeah. you approach it to disentangle from needing that outcome to take place for your mental stability? Well, I, it, it's actually quite clear for me is we've, it's a first principle of mine, which is um, nobody does it alone. So like if it resonates with other people, cool, you know, like, great, it'll happen. Um, I need to work on controlling what's in my control and potentially master those things that are in my control. And if I can stay connected to those two things and especially the mastering what's in my control, and I can at that point let the outcome be what it is. It sounds simple. It's taken a long time to practice. And um, I'll tell you one of the ways that I'm engaging it now is that I asked folks to, um, who might want to help support the launch. And I did it on social media and hundreds of people signed up to, to help support it. And I was like, look, that's great evidence that nobody does it alone. And so then the first thing that we did or that I did is I said, look, it's already, it's, I sent them the, um, the, the final manuscript. And I said, um, I couldn't find any mistakes. I bet there are. The, the editors at Harvard Business Review couldn't find any mistakes because we wouldn't have sent it, you know, if we thought that there was mistakes in it. I said, let's see if we can build a little competition, right? And see who can find mistakes. <laughs> Six came back, Sean. Six <laughs> mistakes came back. And I'm going to take it, you know, like that, that feels pretty good. So um, there was no mistakes like on content or ideology. It was typos. And so um, just pointing to it, like we're not perfect. It creates a lot of freedom. And then doing that publicly is re- revealing as well, or not revealing, but um, it just creates more space. Hmm. So um, so that maybe that's just one fun way to think about it. Control what you can. No one does it alone. So be part of something. And then, um, you know, get, get on the right side of being imperfect. <laughs> so, hmm. you know, have some fun with it. One of the things, Dr. Mike, that you really reinforced for me over the years is when you have an idea and you're strong on it, how are you seeing the other side? And can you explore the depth of that other side? And so this has me wondering around FOPO. And you laid out very clearly the downsides and how negative it can be basically the last 10 minutes of the conversation. How else is it a positive? Because I'm thinking about the times that I have experienced deep, deep joy in my life. And there's a handful of people that pop up in my head where there was a smile on their face that took years to earn. And I'm not saying I had to do that to earn their approval. There's nothing like that. But it was a deep-seated joy. And it's, it's, it's there with a handful of things that I've done and a handful of people. And to okay. me, oh, yeah. Sorry. yeah. No, 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 no I, think, please, I think, yeah. No, I want to hear I, that last part. 
I would say it's my greatest motivator in life at times. Back to the, to the Goethe quote of reaching infinity. There's a handful of people, and I think it's in those times that they pop in my head that even helps me drive just a little bit further. Believe me, there are plenty of times where there's no one being pictured and it's 100% internal, but there's also a very positive element of thinking about the opinions of other people. Yeah. Um, so let's take the flip side of it. Let's first m make sure we're talking about the same thing, is that this book is about the first rule of mastery, as it's titled, is to work from the inside out to make a fundamental commitment to work on your psychology. That is the first rule of mastery. It is not yeah. to refine the external um, expression. It's to work from the, the first rule is to work from the inside out. Okay. And when you do that, you end up stop stopping, worrying about what people think of you. So the word is not stop caring. That would be, that would be a very dangerous world if people stop caring yeah. about what people, other people thought. This is about not worrying or reducing the worrying, maybe eliminating the worry. So the worry is an excessive, in, the, in, in, in particular, it's an excessive um, uncertainty about what they might think. And if they mm -hmm. were to think unfavorably, that it would be a collapse of your sense of identity. Yeah. And, okay, so when I take the other side of it and you are highly tuned to what other people think, you'll fit in well. You'll be the life of a party. You might be one of the great performers. You might go the extra mile or step to be able to do things that other people maybe aren't willing or aren't motivated to do because you, you are valuing approval, um, celebration, a bit of a prompting up from other people. And so performance-based identity FOPO together perf with perfectionism, with just enough, you know, other type of, types of an anxiousness, that'll get you really good. Perfectionism, OCD, highly attuned to approval to others, you know, a, a, a relentless fear of rejection, that'll move you into um, a place where you'll work harder than most people. I don't think that any of this is healthy though, okay? This is not the path forward that... Um, I want to promote, but I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over again. So it'll get you good. That's the one way I can say to it. The other thing um, to take the counter argument is that if you have a pervasive worry about what other people think of you, you might live a longer life because you are motivated to stay at the center. You're motivated to stay in favor from other people. I don't think that that's what most people really want, though. You know, the, a long, dull, boring, miserable life. I don't, I don't think that's it. You know, like falsely, a, a feeling of falsely approved by other people because you've played life according to their rules, to their standards. And um, so that's my point, counterpoint. The, the third piece that I'll venture into is that when you are highly tuned to what other people think of you, there is a level of consci conscientiousness and so highly conscientious people um, can do some amazing things in this world. They can work from a place of benevolence and empathy and compassion and kindness because they, they, the last thing they want is suffering for other people. 
So they'd rather suffer some, not all, be very clear about that, would be okay suffering, uh, taking on consistent suffering themselves so that other people can have a sense of freedom. The martyr, the codependent, you know, those profiles. So those are some point counterpoints. And again, I, I don't think that they're more straw men than anything else. Like, I don't think they really hold up um, because I'm looking at it through the word worry. So an excessive yeah. worry about what people think. And that worry starts in your closet when you're trying to decide what you're going to wear to a holiday party. And you're making those choices not based on what you are going to feel good in and a way to express, you know, part of your your personality. But you're doing it because Jane or, you know, whomever is going to approve of you. So that's just got to, um, I think we just got to square up with it and be honest. Like, am I making choices for approval of others? And um, how much of this life am I living on my own terms? Again, there's freedom on the other side of this. Mm. And so, and I, you know exactly what it feels like. We all know what it feels like to have that sense of freedom, that se sense of self-assurance, that knowing that you matter because you breathe, because you care, because you are trying your very best to add to the center of humanity. Like, those are really cool things. And they, they each of them stand up on their own. And so... Yeah. yeah, Dr. Mike, I love how you can explore the depth on both sides. I, I should have done a much better job framing it. I'm in complete agreement with how you laid it out in the book and the tools you use to navigate. I'm completely on your side. This is almost the yin and yang where... Oh, cool. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, no, good, I, I was, it's really good to, to wrestle things down. I think that that's a good intellectual um, bit there. Well, because I'm curious about your internal drivers and this intensity you have to pursue mastery, to pursue your craft, it seems like your pursuit of life. And so I'm wondering what is going on in your mind, in your heart, when you are pushing up against your invisible boundaries? What, what are you feeling at your core? Yeah, there's a frustration. There's... Um, the first experience is usually a frustration. And anything that's on the anger scale is not first color. It's not primary. So the first bit is a frustration. And I know that for me to, to, to work from depth, I need to go right underneath of that. And mm. there's two primary emotions that I experience. One is um, a fear of letting, of not being good enough, a fear of um, a real physical consequence a fear of living with the knowing that I didn't go for it or the knowing that um, I hesitated and played it safe when I had spent years preparing or training or even weeks preparing or training. So so there's the, the fear of the knowing um, and there's the fear of the real physical consequence that could take place if I'm in a, you know, that type of environment. And then the other part is when I'm frustrated, there's a, um, a sense of let down or hurt or sadness. So I'm either operating from fear or sadness in those two when I feel the frustration. And when I'm honest and I have enough time, sometimes in performative environments, there isn't the time. You just got to check it, hello and goodbye, and get back to kind of the, the task at hand, you know, with great volitional commitment to stay tuned to the unfolding moment. Now, if, but I recognize that there's like a frustration that it's resting on one of those other two emotions. 
that's the work that I bring back to the laboratory or that's the clay I bring back to the laboratory and I go to work on that. And more often than not, it is either one of those two things like a, um, a hurt or sadness and or a, um, a fear, uh, one mm. of the two that I mentioned. But you're saying in the moment, say you're in the middle of the game, thought comes in, you essentially have to compartmentalize it after the game. That's when you go back and explore that and then do the deeper work. Yeah, I think there's, in the task at hand, our job is to get to the signal and it's to gate out, gate out, gate out, gate out all the noise. And when that pops up, when there's a type, when there's a type of thinking that is leading to an emotional response that is not facilitative, then, then it's like, oh, look at that. Okay, later. And then come back to tracking the game, tracking the conversation, tracking, you know, driving your attention back to something that is external for the most part, and narrow. And if you can go from, from an internal, broad, analytical state, which analysis by, or paralysis by analysis is, is kind of the, the symptom of it. If you can go from that internal analytical state, which there's times for it in performing environments, of course, but if that feels like you're ruminating there just a fraction of a second or a couple seconds too long, then you wanna drive your attention external and narrow. And it's a bit of an inoculation or a tactic to get out of your head. And um, so that's that's how I I work my focus in those mm. moments. Speaking of your work and your focus, something that I really appreciate about you is how you can seamlessly navigate different environments, right? Like Seattle Seahawks, Red Bull athletes, surfers, titans of business. What has allowed you to effectively navigate that? Because I feel like so often we see people that just stay in one domain. And I'm very envious of people who can conquer and explore multiple domains and apply their skill sets there. Well, I think, um, thank you for the compliment. It is first and foremost, like, be you, whatever that means to you. And so I'm trying to work from first principles. And I have clarity of what those first principles are that matter to me. And from those first principles, um, I want to carry and port those into any environment that I'm in. So I want to be about it. Be about what? Those first principles. And when I, when I have clarity of those first principles and then I want to live with conviction in any environment, what I need in between those two is to practice the mental skills so that I can be about it independent of who the person across the conversation or whatever is. And so whether it's a business titan or uh, one of our intrepid explorers of potential or, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, my job is to show up and be me. And um, I've got some principles that I want to work from. And my, my purpose in life is to help unlock the potential that lies dormant in other people. And my tactic in doing that is to help people understand how to work from the present moment more often. So for me to take that position in life, I have to practice it myself. And so it's practicing living with first principles. So I better have some mental skills because sometimes some rooms are harder than others, you know, to be grounded and clear and have great conviction. Um, and then if I'm going to help other people unlock, then I need to first practice that work myself so that I can be free in a moment. I can be fluid. And... Um, that requires being in the present moment. So I better find some practices to be in the present moment. The, the, the fun thing, Sean, about like life is that um, like the Zen Cohen shows up here for me, which is 
good news, bad news, says the, you know, the, uh, the Zen master to the student. And the student kind of looks and says, whichever one you want. And probably not like that. That sounded a little condescending to a Zen master. And then so uh, the Zen master goes on to say, life is like we're falling. Life is like we're free falling from the sky without anything to grasp onto or hold. And good news, there's no bottom. So, so who knows how this thing goes? I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know if we'll have a chance to meet each other in person. But um, so our job is to be here, like really here in the moments we have with each other. And if I don't work with my mind, I'm going to be anxious trying to fit in, solve problems that, you know, are important rather than be right here right now. So that's the work. And I'll, I'll just part two of the amazing thing of life is we take our mind everywhere we go. So in that kind of concrete sense, it is our most valuable asset. It's the way that we interpret all things in life is through the filter of our mind. And I can't think of a better investment to make. And elite athletes across some of the best performing teams in the world have for 25 years have said to me, oh yeah, the mind is where it changes here. The mind is the separate, the mind is the competitive advantage. At this level, the mental part is everything. Everyone's physically and technically skilled. It's the mind that ma makes the difference. All right, well, let's get after it then. And it's, mm. it's not as hard as it sounds. I love that. Two final ones here. Why did you start the book with the Carl Jung quote, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my, one of my mentors said to me early on when I was getting into the field of, you know, as a, as a licensed psychologist, he kind of patted me on the back I was, as I was leaving graduate school. And he said, Mike, um, everything you're going to ever need to work on is going to show up in the chair across from you. I go, what? He goes, yeah, everything that you need to work on is going to show up in the chair across you. Keep seeing yourself and others. Keep understanding, you know, like what it's like to be them because those parts of you that they're struggling with, you've also struggled with. You're also probably still struggling with many of them. So pay attention. You know, and so that was the idea. Carl Jung, I think, said it way more poetic than I just did. And I wanted to start with that is that uh, there's a projection mechanism to the human mind. And there's when we use that in a in a way for growth, we can see the blind spots and we can see parts of ourselves and others. And hopefully they can see themselves in, in you as well, that that can be an accelerant for growth. And so mm. it's not an othering. It's, there's a, there's a togetherness and I mean, surprisingly, so I think most of us are, are working on the same shit, <laughs> like surprisingly. So best in the world, if, if you and I were having a conversation just like we are now and, you know, the best in the world at basketball or football or um, martial arts or, you know, poetry, we're sitting in the room and you, you wrote down the stuff that on a piece of paper that, um, kind of are your your things that you're working on being better at and the pain points and the suffering in your life. And I did the same and this person did the same. They're going to be really similar now. And so um, that that's one thing that's taught me over the last 25 years is that the best in the world are working out the same things you and I are working out. Hmm. So on episode 260, I asked you who you'd sit down with. If you could sit down with anyone dead or alive. So I'll let the listeners go back there to get the answer to that one. But I would love to know if you were fast forward we're doing this conversation in 50 years, you're getting close to the end. What's yourself in 50 years going to tell yourself of today you wish you'd started sooner? 
Starting sooner. Um, it, I mean, it's probably really simple, which is the best more. things are, aren't they? Yeah. Play more. You know, it's been, it's, it's, I say that because it's a theme every year. I don't make a resolution, but I do have like, what am I getting after this year in a, what might seem like a pithy statement, but it matters to me. And the last two years, because <laughs> I had to re rinse and repeat because I didn't get it the first year is the year of play. <laughs> and I know that like, I take, I'm, I'm an intense person. I take life pretty seriously. Um, I try not to take myself seriously and I just want to play more. And it's in that playfulness where I feel super tuned and connected to other people. So um, I think if I, <laughs> like, hopefully if I'm 50 years from now and I'm, I'm looking back, I'm like, you did it. You played more kid, like nice job. And so that's, that's, that's where my focus is right now. That's awesome. Dr. Michael Trevay, I've told you this before, and there has not been someone whose ears have gotten more time, my own ears, than yours, your voice in your podcast, Finding Mastery. Oh I think it goodness. is the greatest. No, 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 no. I honestly have said this again and again. I think it's the greatest resource in terms of podcasting on the internet about understanding yourself and uncovering the psychological toolkit you need to navigate life. And I, I just think it's amazing and it's a free resource and I just hope people run out, grab your book, The First Rule of Mastery, stop worrying what people think of you, check out your podcast uh, because it's incredible what you do. So I just wanted to say thank you again. I know you've heard that from me. Uh, it's just something I really appreciate. Oh man, I feel all of that. Thank you so much. Um, and I remember the quote, it's Leonard Cohen. There's a crack in everything and that's where the light gets in. And so... Thank you for um, helping me get into the cracks and um, leaving, you know, with reminding that that's where the light gets in. So that was fun, man. I really appreciate uh, your your graciousness and, and your interest. And um, man, I'm rooting for you and your team, for you and your community. Like, let's go do some amazing shit. I appreciate it. Where do you want the listeners heading? Yeah, so Finding Mastery podcast is great. I really appreciate that. The, you can find the book and everything else wherever books are sold. And findingmastery.com is slash book. We've got a bunch of resources there that if you buy the book in advance, that we've got some fun bundles. And so I would, I would support, um, that's a good place to start, findingmastery.com forward slash book. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.